Matthew chapter 9 is where we are. We are studying the gospel of Matthew if you're a guest. And we now find ourselves in verses 14 to 17. So four verses today. Let me read it and then I'll pray. And we'll start going through this text together. Then the disciples of John came to him, that him is Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, as, as Tiffany already prayed, we pray again together uh, for the comfort that comes by way of your word, for the joy um, that is brought into our lives by way of your word, the, the training and the equipping and the challenging, the admonishment, the necessary admonishment at times that comes by your word. We thank you for your word and we thank you that we can gather in and under your word. But Father, we desperately need help as we do that. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would meet us in this time. Uh, for those that come here overjoyed as a result of things they're going through, we pray that this would only add to it. For those, again, that are going through difficulty, I pray that this would be a sweet time of comfort and assurance as well. Help me as I preach and teach today, I pray. I need much help. I'm a man most fallible, and so I need much help. So help me, and as I pray all of the time, I pray for us as listeners that we would have ears to hear what you have for us today for our strength and for our joy and, and for your glory, I pray. Amen. Uh, a number of weeks ago, in fact, I think I've done it a couple of times, I've reminded us of how important it is as we study Matthew's gospel to keep in consideration its layout and its structure. It's really important because the layout and structure of Matthew in and of themselves teach. Uh, for example, and I'll have you just double back, go back to chapter 4. If you look at verse 23, and this is just an example, one example for us. In verse 23 of chapter 4, Matthew kind of gives a summary statement regarding the kingdom ushering of Jesus, the the verse reads, and he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so that's a summary statement. Jesus is doing a bunch of stuff. He's teaching, he's proclaiming, but he's also doing the miraculous. And so what Matthew does immediately hereafter is he goes from summary to depth where in chapters 5 to 7 he highlights this proclaiming and teaching ministry of Jesus and what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
But then what he does is in chapters 8 and 9, chapters that we've spent the last number of weeks in, he highlights the miraculous and the powerful and the signs and the wonders. So what he is doing is he's taking that verse, chapter 4, verse 23, and he's elongating it. He's, he's, getting, he's getting more specific and he's going deeper. The, the question that we must try to figure out is, why are you doing this, Matthew? What's the purpose? Well, there is a purpose, because when Matthew put quill to parchment, he had, he had something in mind, and what he had in mind was trying to convince his readership of who Jesus was. That's his desire. That's his goal. He had an agenda. He wasn't just recording history. He's trying to convince them of those things. And how he does it is by not just highlighting that Jesus spoke with great authority and made great claims, although he did, but he backed them up. So the Sermon on the Mount, as we talked about a number of weeks ago, we didn't study it specifically because we've done it in the past, but it was a great sermon with many claims and it was full of much authority. And so what Matthew does is he then doubles back in chapters 8 and 9 in a sense and he says, here is the authority that Jesus has and it's evidenced in this way. So claims and signs. There's no greater single example of this than what we saw in the healing of the paralytic in the early part of chapter 9. If you remember that scenario, Jesus looks at the paralytic, looks into his eyes and says, son, your sins are forgiven. It's quite the claim. It's quite the statement to be able to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. We know what happens thereafter. The Pharisees start grumbling and complaining. Specifically, actually, it's the scribes start grumbling and complaining, and they start asking, well, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, notice what Jesus says, and I'll remind you of it. If you look at chapter 9 and look at verse 6 specifically, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, just so you know that I have authority, to look into this guy's eyes and forgive his sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So the claim is validated by the sign. I show you that I have this. That's part of the structure of Matthew. Matthew is trying to convince his readers. He's trying to convince you and me of who Jesus is, what he said about himself, what he came to do, who he is and who we are in him, who he is and who we are without him. He's trying to demonstrate that. It's important for us today, I think, that specific point is because many people today speak of Jesus as being a great teacher. You will hear that often. A great teacher, and he was. But what if in his teaching he made claims about himself that only God could? And he did. But backed it up in ways that only God could too. That would change everything, wouldn't it? That what he claimed was backed up by what he did. It would demand a response as the title of our series has in it. As you consider that, let me give you another example of Matthew's use of structure and layout. Just go to chapters 8 and 9, and I'll give you a couple of verses, one after the other. But in these two chapters, we have a series of questions. If you look at verse 27 of chapter 8, the question there is, what sort of man is this? 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. Remember that scenario? But if you go ahead to chapter 9, verse 3, the question there is, this man is blaspheming. Why? Well, as I said, who can forgive sins but God alone? So there's another question. But then if you drop down to verse 9, or uh, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 11, the question there is, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So there's a third question. We looked at that last week. And in our text, in verse 14, there's a fourth. Why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not? Now those questions, this set of questions that Matthew is highlighting, grouped together, stand out on their own. But what adds to the standing out of them is who they are posed by. In the first question, who is this man who calms the sea and calms the wind? That was posed by the disciples of Jesus. It was posed by those in the boat with Jesus. But the second question is posed by the scribes. Who is this guy's forgiven sins? But last week, the third question was posed by the Pharisees. Why is this guy eating with tax collectors and sinners? And now, in our text, the fourth question is posed by the disciples of John. That demands that we ask Matthew, what are you up to? What are you doing? Why these questions posed by four groups, large groups that made up the culture of that time. Matthew, what are you wanting us to see? What are you wanting us to know about Jesus and his coming into the culture? What was it doing? What was it pressing in on with the people at the time? Well, here's my offering. I think Matthew's wanting desiring to demonstrate that Jesus blows away everybody's expectations and sensibilities and perceptions of what a Messiah is to be and look like. And he continues to do the same today. I mean, just think about it. Think about where we've come in these last nine chapters and where we find ourselves today. At this stage, his followers don't get him. What sort of man is this? The experts in the law don't get him. The pious don't get him. And even the disciples of John, who had the ministry of preparing the way for him, don't get him. He even traveled to the Decapolis, if you remember that scenario, and he set two demoniacs free. And what did the people of the Decapolis say in response? They begged him to leave. So collectively, these groups don't grasp who Jesus is. They don't, they don't get what he came to do. And nor do they understand how he came to do it. Do you know the only group who gets Jesus at this stage in Matthew and in bunches? Tax collectors and sinners. That's it. Only group. Matthew 9, except for a couple of individuals, the only group, as Luke 15, one records, who are drawing close to him. Bunches, reclining with Jesus. The only group, sinners and tax collectors. The only question they were asking of Jesus was, what do you prefer with your roasted lamb, red or white? That's it. 
They loved being with Jesus. They wanted to be with Jesus. They were putting on feasts for Jesus. They were reclining with Jesus. They were inviting their friends to Jesus. That's it. Matthew wants us to see that. It's this fourth question that is recorded in verse 14 where I, I want to spend the rest of our time today. Um, so if you wouldn't mind putting your eyes back into verse 14. There's in fact, to be accurate, two questions recorded for us in verse 14. The first question is, why do we fast? That's the first question. Why do we fast? And the second question is, why don't your disciples fast? So let's take these two questions one at a time. First, why do we, remember this question, remember this question is coming from the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fast. So why do, why do we fast? It's a good question. Why do the Pharisees and John's disciples fast? Well, <clears throat> don't know what happened there. Why do they fast? Well, the simplest answer, most basic answer, and it's a good answer, is because the Old Testament instructed them to. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the people of God were instructed to fast as a way of preparation. So there's your answer, at least in part. They fasted because what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures commanded them in places like Leviticus 23 to fast. However, that wasn't the only time we have recorded for us in the Old Testament people fasting. This was simply the only mandated day on the Day of Atonement. But we read in places like Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example, people and nations fasting for a wide variety of reasons. The situation, however, is that over time, fasting had morphed from being a time of worship and preparation into an act of legalism and religion and ritual and self-righteousness, leading to the point where Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees in context. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So there's part of our answer. Why do they fast? To be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, they have received their reward in full. And thus, by the time we get to Jesus, it became a source of pride and a heralded proof of self-proclaimed goodness. They pointed to it. This demonstrates who I am. This demonstrates that I'm good and holy and right. In fact, in one of Jesus' parables, he says this. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. And they did, every Monday and every Thursday. I give tithes of all that I get. So there's our answer. As, as least, at least as it's connected to the Pharisees, why do they fast? Well, number one, to be seen by others, as I've just mentioned. But in addition, as an act of vanity and routine, religion, externality, and put upon piety. So there's our answer. But what about John's disciples? Why do they fast? Well, I think we can conclude, based on the ministry of John, they fasted as an act of repentance, preparation, and the summoning of the anticipated Messiah. 
And it's at this place where we begin getting an answer to the second question posed in verse 14. That question, we fast, so why don't your disciples fast like we do? I think we have an answer. They don't fast as the Pharisees do, for their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. A reminder of the Sermon on the Mount once again. Their practices, unlike the Pharisees, must be a matter of the heart. Jesus is concerned with the internal, being expressed externally, but not the external trying to hide something that hasn't taken place internally. I'm calling people to be transformed from the inside out. And they don't fast like John's disciples because the days of preparation are over. But there's more. If you wouldn't mind looking at verse 15 again, notice what Jesus says in the first half of it. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Half a verse, but Jesus says so much in it. Let me highlight some things that stand out. The first is that he connects fasting with mourning. Please don't miss that. The question to Jesus was, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus' answer, as you see it there, is now's not the time for mourning. Note that because we'll come back to that later. The second thing to note, standing out from this half verse, is how Jesus equates his present time to a time of a wedding celebration. Did you see that? Let me remind you, verse 15, just one more time. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom, the groom, is with them? What Jesus is saying is there's a wedding going on and there's nothing less appropriate than fasting at a wedding. That'd be the worst. Like, who does that? Nobody comes to a wedding and goes, eh, I'm going to pass. They don't, especially at this time. Historically speaking, first century Israel, weddings traditionally went on for seven days. Places were shut down, man. Feasting and dancing and celebration and partying. They would sometimes run out of wine. And if you were lucky enough to have a Messiah for a son, say, would you help him out a little bit, Jesus? Right? That's what takes place at weddings. It was celebration and party and feasting. It's not a time for fasting. Jesus is saying there's a wedding going on. There's a wedding going on. But what's the wedding? Who got married? Well, that's the third thing that stands out about this half verse. It's woven into it. And that is the significance of Jesus equating himself with the groom at the wedding. There's a bridegroom here. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant in light of what we read again and again and again in the Old Testament, where God often equated himself and his people in marriage language. For example, I'll give you one, Hosea 2, and there's many, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In other words, what Jesus is doing in the first half of verse 15 is highly Christological. 
He's, he's making much of himself, and rightly so. Paul affirms this language in places like Ephesians 5, where he talks about Jesus and his bride, the church. And if you were around in our study of Revelation, in Revelation 19, verse 6 and following, we see this layout of this great marriage supper of the Lamb. We have told to us that, that in the eternal we are no longer married. Why? Because there's only one marriage in heaven between Jesus and his bride, the people of God, the church. So there's the answers to our questions. That's why you fast and that's why my disciples don't. But what Jesus then says is that a time is coming where my followers will again. So why will they then fast? That's the third question. Why do we fast, number one? Why don't you fast, number two? Third question, why will your followers fast again? The answer is found halfway through verse 15. The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then, and then they will fast. Did you hear the answer? Why are we, as followers of Jesus, going to fast again? And by association, mourn. Well, the answer is we are to fast and mourn because Jesus isn't with us. When the groom is with his bride is not a time to mourn and fast, but a time came where the groom was taken away and at that time it became appropriate to fast and mourn again. That's the answer. And therefore, we fast and mourn now as demonstration that we hunger to be reunited. <clears throat> we fast and mourn now because disciples of Jesus aren't to be apart from Jesus. And we fast and mourn now because we want to be with the one we love. As Peter writes, though we have not seen him, we love him. And we fast and mourn now because there is a place that is better by far than the one we're presently in. And we fasten more now because to walk by sight is better than walking by faith. And seeing face to face far sweeter than seeing in a mere dimly. We fasten more now because laughter is better than tears. Wellness is better than sickness. Rejoicing is better than mourning. Exaltation better than pain. Life much better than death. And the presence of Jesus far sweeter than anything else. 
Let me offer a couple of texts back to back to back that support this. Paul writes in Philippians 1.23, I'm hard pressed. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from <clears throat> we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Whose face do we see face to face? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And lastly, John adds in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. As some of you know, my mom passed this week. Uh, Matt graciously offered to speak in my place today, but as I looked at this text, this text, this text, talking about a time coming and mourning, and there's a place better, I said, Matt, thank you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, because I, I quickly concluded that it was a sweet gift that I wanted to soak in. This may not turn out to be the best message I've ever given, but at least in its preparation, it's been tremendously comforting to me. I, along with my family, <clears throat> I, along with my family and our other loved ones and other loved ones, mourn today, but I understand that my mom no longer does. She's of right mind and body, no more tears, seeing clearly. She's dancing a jig. Mourning no more. And you know why? Because she's with Jesus. Separated no longer. And you know what? There's no fasting in heaven, because it wouldn't be heaven if we couldn't eat all the time. There's no fasting in heaven. Because there's no mourning in heaven. Only feasting in heaven and seeing face to face in heaven and being like Jesus in heaven. And I know that I don't share this hope alone. Many of you have experienced times like this too, so you know. You know. Jesus ends with two analogies. There's nothing worse than a sniffler in a mic. That's a, that's a bad combination. That's a, especially with a schnoz the size of mine. <laughs> Jesus ends with two analogies in verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. 
for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Two analogies, a sewing one and a winemaking one. In the first is the idea, it's a really simple idea, if you have a piece of, unsh- uh, of shrunk cloth and it gets a tear in it and you want to mend the tear, you don't take a piece of unshrunk cloth and sew it onto the shrunk cloth because when you wash it next, it will shrink and that new piece of cloth will tear away from the old one and it will make the tear worse. Really simple analogy. The second analogy, the wine-making one, really the wine-carrying one, uh, they would, to be able to take wine from one place to another, is they would have wine skins made out of animal skins. They would tan it. They would shave it. uh, They would turn it inside out. They would sew it up. They would have a little spot where they could pour wine into it and they would carry it around. Really important, however, is that when you poured wine into a wineskin is that the wine had elasticity because the wine going into it, as you can imagine, would stretch the wineskin. In addition to that, if there was fermentation that still needed to take place, it would even put greater pressure onto the wineskin. And so Jesus is saying that if you were to take new wine and pour it into an old wineskin that it sat around, dried, cracked, if you poured it in, it wouldn't stretch and the wineskin itself would be destroyed along with the wine in it. Again, a really simple analogy, two really simple analogies, but the question is, what's the point of them? What does Jesus want to get us to get out of them, especially in light of the question about fasting? How are they connected? What's going on? Well, here's what Jesus is saying, and let me have the grace to paraphrase Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm not an add-on. We've seen this idea before, but he goes further this time. Jesus is saying, I'm not simply to be poured into what already exists or patched onto what's already there. I'm not Judaism 2.0. I'm not an upgrade from a previous version, but a whole new operating system. All you tech nerds are happy right now. I'm giving you illustrations that you understand. You're treating me like a coat of paint when I'm actually a brand new building. You're asking me to graft into what's already being done. How come you don't fast like we do, Jesus? Because I didn't come for that. I came to usher in the new and in abundance, not improve the old. I'm about creating new things, not improving old ones. This isn't reformed Phariseeism. That's dry and cracked. Your way is dry and cracked, Jesus is saying to the disciples of John and to the Pharisees especially. This isn't new to old or new to shrunk either. And this isn't about external practice but internal holiness and change. And I'm not down on rituals. Rituals are fine but they need to be birthed out of a reality. So too for us. Jesus gave us a ritual that we are to practice in the church too that we observe here all the time. The communion table and baptism, rituals, practices, routines, remembrances, ordinances, sacraments, whatever you want to call them, but they need to flow out of hearts that have been changed. Nothing wrong with them, but they need to flow from the inside 
out. So I'm not down on those. They just need to be birthed out of a reality. So yes, a day is coming when my followers will fast because they mourn. That's why they're going to fast. But you, Pharisees, you don't fast because you, you mourn. That's not why you fast. You fast to depict something that isn't real but attempt to dupe people into thinking that it is. And that's when this gets very close to home. And that's when this tells us that it has a lot more to do than just with fasting. But all of our external acts, are they coming out of an internal heart change or are they being practiced to try to dupe others into thinking that everything's good in here? Another analogy that Jesus used was whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're dead man's bones. To conclude the paraphrase of Jesus, what I bring doesn't fit in with that. It will only fit in with those who know they are sick and a sinner, as we look back to last week. Those who come into the feast and pull up to the table and eat with Jesus. Some have mistakenly said that Jesus was speaking against the Old Testament and the law here. That's the conclusion that some people make coming out of this text. But, but that's not the case. For one, as we read and hear in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And I remind you of last week where he challenged the Pharisees to what? At the end of our text, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy over sacrifice. Where is that Instruction taken from Hosea 6.6, 6, the Old Testament. So Jesus is not coming here and going, I'm attacking the Old Testament and I'm attacking the law. What Jesus was speaking against as it pertained to the Pharisees and why he was speaking against them was because they had taken the Old Testament and turned it into legalism when its call was mercy. And Jesus was speaking against the disciples of John because what they were preparing for was standing right in front of them and they were missing it. Three questions. Why do we fast? Why don't you? And why are we to fast again? But as I close, I need to ask one additional question, a final question, and the all-important question coming out of this text. That question, how do we become the new wineskin that Jesus wants to pour himself into? How, Jesus? I don't want to be dry and cracked anymore. I don't want to be like the torn garment anymore. Jesus, help me. Is, is there an answer in here, in these four verses? I would suggest there is, and it's wrapped up in the phrase, it's only one word in the Greek, but it's the phrase taken away. You see it there? Taken away. You'll see it in verse 15 at the very end. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Af ahireo in the Greek, it's a word that speaks of being taken from and taken away. To take from and to take away. 
It's a word when read in the context of this passage, but in light of the rest of the ministry of Jesus as well, that points us to the cross and reminds us of it, doesn't it? See, Jesus doesn't simply say, a time is coming when I'm going to depart or leave. Jesus says, a time is coming where I will be taken away. I'll be lifted up. I will be removed. And again, doesn't that remind us of the cross? Jesus in the garden praying with his disciples was at that stage taken away by the guards, taken to the cross, put up on the cross where he died, but he was taken away from the cross and he was placed in a tomb. Placed in the tomb, a dead body, lying in the tomb for three days, but it didn't stop there. He was taken away from the tomb, raised from the tomb, where he appeared before many at one time for 40 days before finally being taken away to the Father's side. That's why I say this phrase answers our question. So how do I become, how do I become new wineskin? How do I become mended whole once again? Well, we become new by receiving in faith the sacrificial death and life-giving resurrection of Jesus. And when we do, old is replaced with new. And the grace of God by way of Jesus is poured into our lives, new wine into new wineskins. Have you received the work of Jesus on your behalf by faith? His death for your life? His burial for your resurrection? Him taking your old and giving you new? Have you received that work of Jesus by faith? Today can be that day. Where you're changed inside out. Instead of attempting to live a life where you dupe those around you. But inside it's cold. Have you received that work? You come to Jesus today. Say yes to Jesus today. Repent of your sins and come to Jesus today. Newness. Looking ahead to a time where we will see him face to face and that's better by far. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Jesus, we love you. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Grace upon grace. We thank you for the hope that is in you. Hope nowhere else. Hope in you. That your promises are true because they're true in you. So we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your compassion and your hope and the strength we Thank you for all of it. Thank you for making us new. Thank you for pouring into us. And I pray for those that don't know you here. I pray today would be a day where they say yes to you, come to you, repent of their sins and come to you and be transformed. And for those of us that do know you, I just pray that we'd walk in that grace today, renewed, refreshed. If we've strayed from you this week, that we come back to you holding on to you desperately. For where else are we, are we going to hold? 
Where else? So we love you, Jesus. Thank you. And I pray that this time of response would be a, a sweet aroma to you, sweet offering. I pray for these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.